This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to Travel Writing World, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and about the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, free travel writing resources, and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Hello, everyone. This is episode 84 of the Travel Writing World podcast. Joining me today is Rebecca Lowe, and we're talking about Slow Road to Tehran, her debut book. The book documents her 11,000-kilometer bicycle journey through Europe to Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan, Egypt, Sudan, and finally to Iran. Don't let the slow in its title fool you, though. It's a fast-paced book, one that's also full of humor and insight. In addition to her book, we also talk about Western media representations of the Middle East, her thoughts on solo female travel, and the slow road to publication. Anyway, before we start the episode today, just a note to say, please tell your friends about the podcast, leave a review on the Apple Podcast app or whichever podcasting app you use, and support the show with only a few dollars a month at travelwritingworld.com forward slash support. Lastly, to stay up to date with travel, nature, and place writing news, join the hundreds of other subscribers and sign up for Genius Loci, my free monthly email roundup of news and links at jeremybassetti.com. That's with two S's and two T's. A new roundup goes out on the first of the month. So now, here is Rebecca Lowe. Rebecca, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah. I invited you on to talk about your new book, Slow Road to Tehran, a book that documents your one-year, 11,000-kilometer bike journey from London to Tehran. But like so many good stories, uh, you, you know, good stories begin with someone cautioning another person from going somewhere, you know, and um, I, <laughs> I have this uh, great story from, uh, I read this great story from your book and I also heard a great story in your TEDx talk about an email your mother sent you when you told her that you were going on this journey. Can you tell us about this uh, email? <laughs> yes, yes. This was a, a real email that my mum sent to me. And uh, my mum is a quite exuberant Hungarian and she really wears her heart on her sleeve. And she sent me this this a message which uh, I think it began, um, I cannot tell you how devastated I feel, uh, and then kind of proceeded <laughs> from then on. I think a few of the words were you know, uh, awful, uh, depraved, hostile, uh, the family was disintegrating, um, <laughs> I was risking life and limb. Uh, I mean, it just kind of it burgeoned from there. And uh, it concluded, uh, I think I shall have I think I shall have to hit the bottle or go mad. I'll start with the first option. (laughs) Uh, uh, So my poor mother and my poor father as well at the time, I think uh, I did put them through it a little bit by by going away. Uh, But then wonderfully, my mother now is kind of the biggest champion of the trip, really, and is going around and cajoling everyone she knows and most people that she doesn't into buying the book. So, So... so hopefully she she's forgiven me finally for for what I I put her through. Yeah. So I wanted to start out with that uh, anecdote because um, it's funny and also because it 
kind of plays a role in um, your work and in the book in, in, in terms of kind of dispelling some of the uh, stereotypes that we in the West have about uh, this region. Um, and I, I hope to get to that in this conversation. Um, but before we do, um, why don't we talk a little bit about the technical aspect of the trip? So you you went from London to Tehran. Can you tell us more like method of transport? <laughs> what route did you yeah. take? <laughs> Yes, uh, it was a very slow bicycle. <laughs> I uh, <laughs> uh, I set off from my my London flat in in, in North London, Islington, uh, and I went from there down through Europe, down through uh, France, uh, Italy, Switzerland, uh, then uh, down through the the Balkans, um, and made my way towards uh, Turkey. And from there, I got a boat from Turkey to Lebanon, went from Lebanon to Jordan, Jordan to Egypt, Egypt down the Nile to Khartoum. And then my plan originally actually was to go uh, from uh, Sudan across to, to Yemen and then make my way from there to Oman and to the UAE and then across from the UAE, UAE up to Iran. But uh, Yemen broke out in, in civil war mm. uh, as I was planning the trip. And uh, actually a few places did. <laughs> so I actually had to keep recalibrating my, my, my route. Uh, so I had to leap over Yemen in the end. It just wasn't safe enough to, to travel there. So I ended up then getting a flight from Khartoum over to Muscat in Oman and there to the UAE and then up through Iran to Tehran to mm-hmm. finish. So this was back 2015. It was, yeah, it was July 2015, so a few years ago now. And then, yeah, I arrived in Tehran a year later in 2016. Okay, so why, why did your, your, your book kind of invokes Patrick Lee Fermer's walk from, as he said, the Hook of Holland to Constantinople, um, but you wanted to go further, I, I guess, to Tehran. Well, why Tehran uh, out, out of all the places that you could have ended? I had just been fascinated by Tehran, by Iran for a, a long time. And I think, you know, part of the motivation behind the trip was to, you know, look at how the Middle East was portrayed in the West and in the Western media mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and try and unpick that a little bit and see how uh, that tallied with, with the reality. And I think Iran for me, I thought was just fascinating because I felt we have this very particular image of Iran, that it is um, it's a pariah state and that it's extremist, it's fanatical, it's dangerous. And uh, But then I started writing about it. And this was when I was working for the International Bar Association um, and I was writing a lot about the Arab Spring and I got very interested in the Middle East. And I was writing a lot about Iran as well and also about the nuclear treaty at the time. And the more I wrote about it and the more I read about it, I just... <laughs> My daughter squealing in the in, in the background. Um, <laughs> Hi, baby. <laughs> just being changed. Um, uh, yes, the, the the more I I read and wrote about it, just the more I realised that we got such a skewed sense of what Iran was really like, and um, it's become a bit of a cliche. This idea of kind of the the um, disconnect between people on the one hand and politics on the other. But I feel like in Iran, it really is quite true. There is this very strong division because they are, on the whole, ruled over by a regime that bears very little relation to the actual culture of of the country itself. Um, And uh, so 
yes, I really wanted to go to Tehran. I really wanted to, to see it for myself, to meet the people there. And um, uh, that was really, yeah, the, why, why I decided to mm -hmm. end the journey there. In fact, um, I, I did originally have some plans, vague plans that I might continue on to Afghanistan, but I, it just wasn't safe to do that in the end. Like going across the Iranian-Afghan border was just not a wise decision at all, right, especially right. When, when ISIS had emerged. So I, uh, yes, I decided that I would end in, in Tehran. Well, it seems that when you, you talk about these uh, portrayals and stereotypes of the Middle East or of, of Iran, you know, the same could be said to uh, about anywhere else in the Middle East, right? Afghanistan, as you mentioned, or Egypt for mm -hmm. that matter. Um, and so like, why specifically Iran? Is it because, I, I don't know, I guess it would have been a few years earlier, maybe a decade earlier when, when Bush dubbed Iran as part of the axis of evil. Did, did, did that mm. kind of like... Definitely that, that was part of it, because I think it does apply to other states in the Middle East, but a lot of these states are also our, our friends, our allies, for, for, for better or worse, whereas um, Iran really did have this status as, as being a kind of pariah state, as mm -hmm. you, you mentioned, the axis of evil speech. Um, and I think often these issues do get conflated. Like people tend to see often the leadership of countries as um, representative of the culture of that country, when often there really is this, this strong divide between the two. Um, and I think it's interesting because I think often, actually, I found this when I was traveling, that the people in some of these places are much better at making that division themselves are understanding that disconnect perhaps because they understand they're from a dictatorship and in dictatorships you know it's the politics and the people are often um kind of so somehow uh kind of at odds with each other um whereas in a democracy you know we do bear some responsibility some accountability for the people that we vote into power whether we like to mm. admit it or or not and so perhaps there there isn't less of that um that division and so when you know i found that the the iranians in particular and also elsewhere uh they would talk about the british people and or the and the western people and um, british politics often as two separate things and they would judge me in a very different way from how they would judge um my representatives the lawmakers at home um and i think sometimes we struggle to do that over here we 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 don't um somehow give them the same courtesy as they right. as they give us. And this is a lesson that we're uh, reminded of even today with the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. We're reminded that, you know, P Putin is a problem, not uh, the people, right? The politics, um, perhaps Putin, mm. not the people of Russia. But uh, that's a hard thing because when we slap sanctions on them, you know, we, we hope or the West hopes that it's going, going to affect the people at the top, but it really yeah. trickles down and hurts you know the folks at the bottom as they hurt yeah. uh, the folks in 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 uh, Iran yes exactly like the, the, the people at the top often have ways that they can get around these sanctions and unfortunately the people at the bottom don't and it's it's those people who are hit the worst and uh, and you know it's very sad I mean it really I, I did find it sad traveling through Iran and meeting you know really just such kind of warm-hearted, hospitable, kind, compassionate people uh, whose lives have been ripped apart by the sanctions that have been imposed on, on their country. And, uh, and I'm not saying that necessarily the sanctions were the wrong thing to do, um, 
but it does tend to be the wrong people who are affected the most by them. And uh, uh, yeah, and and, and I, it was, I did feel quite frustrated um, because, you know, in, in, in Iran in particular, there was a sort of sense of despondency I felt about the people there, um, which was different from other places. Like in Sudan, there was a real sense of kind of rebellion, revolution, because little did I know at the time that there was about to be a revolution mm. in, in that country, but you could really feel the fervor. Whereas in Iran, um, it was, I think they tried revolution uh, a couple of times, you know, they, they tried it in 79 and uh, unfortunately the Islamists had then um, usurped the, the revolution for themselves and, and, and hijacked it. And so that hadn't worked out. And then they had the green protests as well. And there was a horrible crackdown after that in 2009. And, you know, there was this sort of sense that now it's about kind of doing it uh, slowly, slowly, that they wanted to just, um, they didn't want to, and they'd seen the Arab Spring, of course, um, which had crashed and burned horribly for a lot of these countries. So they wanted to just, in a, quite a mature way, they wanted to just kind of work their way slowly towards a better system and a better society. But I think it, it's kind of quite an agonizingly slow crawl at, at, at the moment. And it's hard to see know how things can can change in the near future mm-hmm. over there mm-hmm. yeah there seems to me that there's a you know a vacuum of information related to news coming out of iran in particular uh, but uh-huh. generally speaking that part of the world so um i was wondering if like in your reporting background is is that part of why you wanted to go on this trip is to kind of like uncover or kind of do boots on the ground uh, no that's a horrible expression that's like military but um like you know just have this first hand sandals on the ground in my game. sandals on the ground like this first hand account of of something that we in the west don't get a lot of information about and then to yes. share that information with yes. everyone else. Oh, absolutely. Yes, a, a huge amount. I mean, I think that, that, that you really hit the nail on the head. I mean, that was one of my main motivations for, for going there, because I think also that what we do hear about these places is inevitably to do with 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 conflict and with the leadership of these countries and right. with the politics. And um, because, you know, that, you know, that that's I'm not blaming the media for that. That's that's, you know, that's what really people want to read about a lot of the time. If it bleeds, it leads. It's that whole mentality. Um, and it's it's the crises. You need to have a news hook. You can't just write about kind of normal everyday life. Um, you know, you have to write about something kind of dramatic and, and interesting. And so what ends up happening is that all we hear about the Middle East over here is about these cataclysmic events that happen, you know, these wars, these conflicts, these terrorists, uh, these awful dictators that are doing terrible things. And that is all really important. You know, we do need to to hear about that. But I think we get a very skewed idea then that that's all that's going on in the Middle East um, when actually, you know, most of the Middle East is a very peaceful place and, and a very uh, pockets of, of extreme beauty um, and wonder over there and and most people are just very gentle lovely um tolerant easygoing people but you get a sense i think that it's much more fanatical than than, than it really is just because that's all we read about uh, all the time that's the nature of of the news and i think that's the same with with everything not just the middle east i think people are scared of things often, like the wide world, things kind of outside their immediate comfort zone, because they think they're they're dangerous because they read in the media about 
you know, murders and muggings and um, bad things that happen. Like you might read about in, in Turkey, you know, someone warned me as I was cycling, like, didn't you hear about that, that hitchhiker, um, that woman who was hitchhiking on her own and um, she got picked up and then she it was a terribly got Gosh. sexually uh, uh, abused and then and then murdered. It was really a horrible, horrible story. But it turned out this had happened like about sort of 10 years before and it was just one isolated incident. Um, but of course, that's what people remember and that's what they focus on. And then that's what then um, kind of imbues their sense of, of risk. And mm-hmm. I think that means then that people get a very skewed idea of what of how dangerous places are. And it's a shame, really, yeah. because I do think the world is actually a lot um, safer uh, and and nicer than, <laughs> than it often appears. <laughs> yeah, let's hope. Uh, I'm glad you you brought up the the anecdote about the the woman uh, who uh, got raped and, and murdered. Um, you're, you're preceded by a you know a long line of women cyclists and, and travelers, um, you know, people like Dervla Murphy and Freya Stark, mm-hmm. you know, people that you mentioned in the book, uh, no doubt. But, um, and these are people that also, these are women that traveled independently. Um, yet despite kind of this long tradition, right. It's, it goes way back, just as far back as yeah. the men traveling, you kind of maintain that in the book that women are still kind of, uh, interrogated about their solo journeys, unlike men. Um, why, why might that be so still after this rich tradition? You know, <laughs> you tell me, I, mean, uh, I don't know. I think we've got a way to go. Uh, I think there are a lot of women, but we still hear a lot more about the men and there are probably a, a lot more men doing it. Cause I think it's easier for men. Uh, I think that we still live in a, a, a society perhaps where men have more, more freedoms than, than women to do this type of thing. And there's a bit more of an expectation a bit more of a kind of bravado mm. aspect to it, you know, going away, adventuring, uh, exploring. And um, you know, historically and culturally, this has generally been men who are doing it. And, and the women have really been the, the anomalies. Uh, and it's been, you know, when you have had women, they've also been quite manly women. They've really t- tended to, to um, hang out in, you know, in male company and, um, you know, Gertrude Bell and Freya Stark, you know, they always, they, they weren't, they would never have said that they were feminists at all. And they always claimed that they preferred male company to, to female company, um, <laughs> but they were very much sort of feminist in spirits, you know, if not in intense, uh, were doing incredible things really for, for the female cause. Um, yeah, I, uh, I think it's changing. I do think it's changing now. I think a lot of women are now coming into the sort of adventure travel seen um and it's becoming much more normalized um but also we live we are in a bit of a bubble here you know we live in a very kind of progressive liberal country in relative terms to a lot of the world uh and there are places where you know where i was traveling where a woman on a bicycle was just unheard of you know places like upper egypt and um Jordan and um, um, a lot of a lot of the areas, the more outside of the, the the big cities, like often it was a strange thing for people to to see. And so, uh, yeah, so I think there is sometimes when they see a woman, it's just a bit of a surprise. Uh, and you know, so many people ask me, you know, where's my husband? Where are my children? Uh, and uh, they they never asked, not in a an aggressive way at all. It was just you know that's what they associate women with. And uh, I don't think it will ever completely change 
because I think women and children are always going to be um, kind of bonded physically in a way that that it is not going to be the case with with men. And so there's always going to be slight, uh, kind of slightly less freedom there. But um, but it is it's changing slowly. It's changing mm-hmm. slowly here, and it's changing slowly a- across the world. Um, so hopefully we won't be questions. Uh, so much uh, in, in, in the future. Just to clarify, these uh, the, the, this line of questioning is coming from uh, men mostly within Europe and within the Middle East as well. This isn't just, you know, like this. Not, not just men, actually. No, I mean, women as well. Uh, everyone, actually. Yes. I mean, a, a lot of people, they, they, they ask you these things. And a lot of people would also sort of assume that maybe I was going because I just suffered a terrible breakup. Um, or, and I wanted to do some soul searching um, or, yeah, the, uh, somehow I was looking for love on the road or something like that. There was a kind of this, this element of kind of um, the romance about it. Whereas yeah. I think sometimes men, you don't, they don't need to justify their actions in the same way. It's just expected that men will go out. But historically, men were the ones that went out foraging, you know, out into the wild and, um, and, 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 and hunting the, the beasts and dragging them back home and the women were looking after the children. So I guess that's sort of deep, built kind of quite deeply in our, in our psyches. But, uh, but yeah, I got it for, yeah, for, I got it in Europe. Yeah. I got it in the Middle East and I got it from women and I got, I got it from men, um, from, from everyone really. Universal surprise. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. So I'm um, shifting gears a little bit. I wanted to ask you about uh, the writing of this book, um, because as you mentioned earlier, this is a trip that you took in 2015. Um, <laughs> yes. And here we are in 2022. Um, I'm just curious about kind of like how this all came together and whether or not this was like a, um, a, a pandemic book. Is this something that you wrote during the pandemic or like what was that timeline like for you? I, I did write it during the pandemic, but I also wrote it prior to the pandemic as well. It was stretched over quite a long period. I mean, there was certainly a delay. I never intended to write a book on the journey and it would have actually been a lot easier if I had, because I think I would have then been very focused on, you know, what I was planning to do and the material that I needed. And then I could have come home and then distilled it very easily into the book. But I I wasn't planning to, to write the book. I was just planning to go out there and meet people, understand the region, get some material for stories, because I just left my job and turned free, freelance. And so I really wanted to make contacts and get really good human interest stories. But I didn't have a kind of cohesive idea of what a book might be. And it was actually only, um, it was about six or nine months after I got back where an agent actually approached me and said, have you thought of writing a, a book about your trip? And I'd sort of vaguely thought about it, but not seriously. And, uh, and so at that point I actually thought, okay, maybe there is a book here. And I, I wasn't actually that, I didn't go with that agent in the end. I went with a different agent, but she certainly planted the, the seed. Um, and, um, uh, and so then I started thinking about how to write it. I got an agent and then I, the proposal took a long time because I still didn't really know exactly what the book was going to be. And I ended up doing quite a lot of research in addition to actually what I learned on the journey into the Middle East, because I wanted to do the region justice. And, um, you know, it's such a fiendishly complicated place. It really is. And I, I, it was very difficult trying to, to cram into 300 pages, you know, a year long trip 
and then talk about the kind of the, the, the history of the Middle East, which is very long, um, and uh, and the, the West's connection with the Middle East. And that's really what I wanted to be the driver of the book, was to do with the relationship between the Middle East and the West, and my experience as a Westerner traveling through the region. Um, and so it took a while to, to really work out that that was my focal point. And then when I, when I worked that out, then it took a long time to really to drill down into what the essential points were that I wanted to to make. And I mean, my original manuscript was huge. It was this sprawling, <laughs> baggy beast of a man. I mean, it, it's actually embarrassing to think like, how long it was about four times what wow. it should have been. I mean, I just poured everything into it. Um, and I, at one point, I it just felt like I was lost in this dark wood and I just couldn't see any light. I didn't know how to get out of this. Like, I, just, I was just wandering blindly, hacking my way. Um, and uh, so it took a while, I think, to, 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 to turn it into something that was uh, readable and accessible and kind of said what I wanted to say without being too superficial. Right. At the same time, um, because I think part of the problem was that I covered 20 countries and, and, um, and you know, really with a book, what you want to drill down into a lot of detail uh, in these. But I couldn't really do that because I covered such a, a, a span of territory that there was only so much depth I could go into in, in, in each place and if I and trying to pull it together into some kind of cohesive whole. So so yes, yeah, so there was a couple of iterations of the actual proposal before I kind of worked out what it was. And so that took some time. Um, and then the actual writing of it yeah, then yeah took some time. Um, and there were a few hiccups along the way and then I had a baby. So yeah the slow road to Tehran um was actually a lot quicker than the, the slow road to publication. Yeah, there's a metaphor, a metaphor for the, uh, right. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad, uh, I'm glad you mentioned the, the research, um, because I was going to ask you about, uh, about that because, you know, this book, uh, isn't like a strict travelogue. I mean, it does contain a, an element of a travelogue, but you know, there are asides and digressions and diversions into borders and international relations and histories uh, history and politics and you know and all that stuff so it's not it's not just you on a bike the whole time um kind of talking about your your experiences um which i'm thankful for um but you you'd mentioned earlier that um you never intended to write a book when you initially set out on on your journey and so here you are kind of 5 years later how are you uh, piecing that experience together you were you drawing from memory alone or did you did you have some sort of journaling practice yeah i know I, I even though i wasn't planning to to write a book i i was planning to to use the material uh in in as many ways as i could and i it wasn't that i wasn't definitely wasn't planning to write but i was at the back of my head i thought oh, you know, maybe there's there's a book here but i just never mm fully committed myself to it. And so I had very detailed diaries. Uh, so I, I, I wrote, I had about um, 25 notepads of diaries packed in my panniers that I was carrying around <laughs> with me, which is totally ridiculous. You talk to a, you know, a proper bike tourer and they'll tell you absolutely mad. You know, you want as minimal luggage as possible. And I should have just sent them home, but I was just somehow paranoid about losing them uh, but I mean I still I could have I, in the end I ended up photocopying all of them because I was paranoid also when I entered 
Iran that somehow they'd take them away from me. And so I did end up putting them all online anyway. So I don't know why I was um, carrying them around with me, but I had a, a lot of material from the diaries. And I also was blogging as I went. I wrote a few articles, um, uh, uh, took lots of pictures, um, made a lot of contacts as I went, had a very, very long contacts book at the end of it. So that's what I drew on. So I did have quite a lot of material when, when I came back. And then, and, and that's what I sort of started. And I had, you know, I wrote down conversations with, with people, you know, as verbatim as I could at the time. And, uh, and I, yes, yeah, so I, I drew on that really, and then started padding it out with the extra research that I did when, when I got home. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And that's good that you have all of those records. And I, I imagine it to be a, a daunting task to go through that many books when trying to, you know, condense a year long experience into 300 some odd pages, um, which is Something I want to just comment on, um, you know, your book is called Slow Road to Tehran, but, you know, it's, it's a fast paced uh, book. It reads, um, it reads, you know, there's a nice pacing to it. it. It kind of skips along and we're not like, you know, bored in one place <laughs> for too long. I'm so yeah. glad you say that. <laughs> you wouldn't have said that if you'd read the, read the original manuscript. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but that was important to me because I wanted it to be a readable book. I wanted it to be an accessible book. I didn't want it to be too academic or too overly bogged down in historical detail. I really wanted people to enjoy it because I don't think there's much point in writing a book if nobody reads it so I I'd, I'd sort of in a sense I wanted to write um make it even if I had to compromise perhaps you know some of the the detail and depth I was prepared to do that if I could um get more people reading it and at least sort of knowing you know something about what I wanted to say about, about the Middle East so um yeah I'm really pleased if you feel like it's got momentum to it mm -hmm. um yeah I'm just writing down here. There's no point in writing a book if no one's going to read it. I'm just <laughs> scribbling it in my notes. I think that's, uh, you know, a very helpful thing. I think differently. I'm sorry? I think a lot of people might think differently. They write a book for themselves, you know, but uh, yeah, certainly after uh, that, that length of time, I, I, I did want at least a few people to, to read it. Yeah. Yeah, no, um, I think that's something that's important to keep in mind. It's, you know, you, you write for yourself, but you also write for sharing those experiences. And if that is a hurdle, <laughs> then you yeah. know, it's a, it's a failure on one level. But um, in, in closing, um, I just wanted to ask you about books, uh, perhaps books that inspired you, books that uh, you consulted, perhaps um, just books that, you know, that, Kind of compelled you to think about your own own journey in a literary mm -hmm. form. Yeah, uh, I mean, there's so many. I could talk about this for a, a very long time. I mean, there are some travel writers that are probably favourites of mine. Uh, you've mentioned a, a few of them already. I mean, uh, Dervla Murphy. I think just for her her grit and chutzpah. Like um, I read Full Tilt was the first book I read on the trip, and uh, I mean, she's just a phenomenal person and traveler and cyclist and uh, I mean she's tougher than I could ever be uh, so she was quite an, an, an inspiration I just love how she writes like it's very um, matter of fact you know mm -hmm. she talk about these kind of just crazy dangerous journeys that she took you know through Afghanistan and through these huge 
kind of gaping chasms and things and how she would carry the bike on her back, you know, like a sort of climb like a mountain goat over these ravines and just say it as though it was just, <laughs> she was just popping down to the park or something. Uh, it's quite phenomenal. Uh, but I love, I love Eric Newby for his humor. Uh, I love a short walk to the, to the, um, through the Hindu Kush. I, I just, I love that. I, I like um, travel books that have a bit of humor in them, a bit of frivolity. Um, I, you know, I like it when perhaps travelers don't take themselves too seriously. Uh, although having said that, another favourite is Wilfred Thiesiger, um, who does take himself right. very seriously, and there's a kind of um, a kind of severe nature to his his writing, a bit a bit doer perhaps, um, but just uh, Arabian Sands, I just think is incredible, like how he uh, just completely gave himself over to to these nomadic communities i just think was was phenomenal and just a fascinating character as well like a member of the the establishment you know like so many of these these men were at the time and yet also very much an outsider mm-hmm. and so yeah i found him interesting and then actually a, a recent discovery who i just think is perhaps the most brilliant travel writer that, that i've read um uh, jonathan rabin which uh i i, I actually I'm embarrassed to say that I hadn't read anything of his until quite recently. Um, my old college supervisor recommended him and I read his book, um, Arabia Through the, the Looking Glass, I think mm. it's called. And um, I just think I, I love it because he's he's so funny and yet he really kind of captures the essence and character of the places that he goes. Um, you know, he he um, gets the, the, the rhythm of, of how people speak and how people live and he can um, he can. He, he never will, will draw kind of very kind of broad conclusions that are very obvious, but somehow through the interactions he has, see the very specific interactions, you yourself can, you can, can then, uh, he conjures up patterns uh, about the places that he goes to. Um, and he somehow manages to kind of draw it all together through these interactions. And he just does that brilliantly. Um, and then, yeah, maybe Rory Stewart's the last one that I would mention. I think his his book on Afghanistan, like walking across Afghanistan and the places in between, just uh, an absolutely amazing book. Um, again, a kind of very kind of sparse style, um, but he kind of just paints like these beautiful, exquisite little pictures with every sentence. Um, there's not really a, a word that's wasted in that book. And he obviously knew the, the country incredibly well, spoke the language, um, understood the politics. And so, yeah, that was that was a big inspiration, actually, mm. reading that. Uh, so that's just a few. I mean, there's there's many, many others as, as well, but that's just a handful. You, you'd mentioned uh, reading the first book that you read on your trip was Dervla Murf- Murphy's Full Tilt. And uh, were you reading consistently throughout your trip, these books or...? Um, yes. Yeah. Yes, I was actually. I took a few real books with me. Actually, again, which was, <laughs> Adding to the weight. A, ter- <laughs> a terrible idea. I don't know what I was thinking. I mean, I, 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 I kind of got rid of them as I went and I was tearing pages out as though, as though that would make a difference considering I had sort of 25 notepads in uh, <laughs> one of my pages. <laughs> I mean, I took silly things. I took like 
inflatable chair. I took a silver-plated <laughs> hip flask. I took a mini tripod. I took my ukulele. I mean, like it was really, um, it was I mean, not, not the way to do bike touring at all. And so I took actually a, a few real books because I do prefer a real book to um, a Kindle, but I had my Kindle as, as well. And I took lots of books on, on the Kindle. And so at night, um, I would often, when at the beginning, certainly it was harder in the Middle East, actually, because there's just so many people everywhere uh, that you don't, I didn't really have any time to read when I got to the Middle East because you're always interacting with people. But when I was camping at the beginning, when I was wild camping through Europe, uh, often, you know, I would be hunkered down in, in my tent and I'd have a little nightcap because just to still the anxiety of being there on my own in the middle of nowhere and then I'd have my book and it was lovely actually you know I, I, it was it was it was very um relaxing and enjoyable so I, I really love those those moments mm-hmm. um uh yeah so I did yeah, I did read quite a lot um, I think you're you're during, during the I think your overpacking can be overlooked uh by the cycling community as you mentioned somewhere in the book you uh you're not a cyclist. You're a person who happens to cycle. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, absolutely true. Yeah. Um, yes, I, I had done. You know, I, I love cycling. I really enjoy cycling, and I, I always have. But I've never been an avid cyclist at all. And um, most of my cycling has been uh, pragmatic cycling from A to B. And so I would um, commute to work. But this is in London, and I would just commute basically. Uh, uh, about a 15 kilometer round trip and there weren't any hills either. Like I thought I knew what a hill was. And then I started this trip and I realized, you know, what I thought were hills in London really weren't hills at all. <laughs> completely different, uh, a whole different species. So uh, uh, yes, it was definitely uh, quite a steep learning curve, realizing that I had to almost learn how to cycle on this trip and certainly had to learn how to cycle this particular bike which I'd never ridden before um, and it arrived just the day before I left, <laughs> given to me by um, Kona as sponsorship very kindly, but I didn't have time to practice on it. And, and I'd never cycled with panniers before. So I had to learn how to steer um, and avoid kind of, you know, kind of waywardly kind of just steering into to oncoming traffic and, and hedges and small children. And uh, so uh, it, yeah, it took a while just to, to learn the very basic ropes actually. Mm-hmm. at the beginning um but uh but yeah by the end i i i think i got there it took, a while. <laughs> it took a while <laughs> i felt almost like a cyclist at, at the end of the trip almost yeah well good um just final question here just a fun fun little question i'm gonna throw out and um if uh if you had a choice to be somewhere along your journey right now instead of being in london mm-hmm. where would you what would you rather be? Oh, good question. Good question. You know what? I'd like to be in Sudan now, I think. I'd like to probably be back in Khartoum. I why, found Khartoum um, absolutely fascinating. And uh, and it felt like something was simmering, something was happening when I was there. And it turned out that, you know, it, 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 it was, it was about to um, blow up in revolution there. And now we've seen that the there's been a, something of a counter-revolution there and the military have, have taken control again, but the people are still protesting. There's still this tremendous energy and exuberance to the people in, in Sudan. And it was a very exciting place to be. And uh, uh, I'd like to go back, and I do plan to go back, actually, if I can get away at some point, um, and hopefully this year at some time, to, 
to see the people there, the friends I made, and just to see what's happening uh, with that revolution now, because I know that they will never stop trying until they have a democratic state there. Like they really, they, they had such drive and motivation and zeal um, and courage. And so, yes, I think probably cartoon mm-hmm. right now. Well, very good, uh, Rebecca. We look forward to talking to you again for your follow-up book on cartoon. <laughs> and, uh, the slower road to tell <laughs> And uh, wish you uh, success and, and luck with this, uh, this new book of yours. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, lovely. Thank you very much for having me. It's, it's been uh, great being here. Thank you very much. You can find the episode show notes and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at travelwritingworld.com support. 